Sorry. There we go. James 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for being our shepherd and steering us. Would you, God, speak to our hearts, cause us to evaluate them, and to grow closer to you. I pray that you would give us clean hands and pure hearts, God, that we may not lift our soul to another. Please speak to us this morning. In your name, amen. Would you please be seated? One of the most uh, memorable Christmases um, that I had with Naomi when we first got married was uh, when I got a stocking with three movies in it. I got Braveheart. The Patriot, and Gladiator. And I haven't seen those too often since, I had kids, since I've had kids. But uh, as I was putting this message together and, and reading, I kept getting drawn to a scene in Gladiator. And for those of you who have never seen the movie, um, it takes place in about one, uh, 180 A.D. It's uh, during the height of the reign of the Roman Empire. They've been conquering battle after battle, expanding their territory. The Caesar was Marcus Aurelius. And the general that was in charge of uh, one of his armies was Maximus. And uh, Caesar was coming to the end of his life, and he had to start thinking, like, who was going to take his place? He had a son named Commodus, but Commodus wasn't a moral man. And Caesar saw that. Caesar liked Maximus because Maximus was humble, and he was loyal to him, and he led the people. He cared about the, Rome, uh, the Roman people. And so, Caesar decided that he was going to make Maximus the next ruler of Rome. And so, there's this one scene where he's in a tent, kind of at the beginning of the movie, and he's talking with Maximus, and he says to him, I have one more thing that I want you to do. And Maximus stands up and he says, what would Caesar have me do? And Caesar says, I want you to be the next projector of Rome. I want you to give Rome back to the Senate and make it a republic again. Will you accept? Maximus says, with all my heart, no. Caesar says, that's exactly why it must be you. And he says, well, what about Commodus? And he says, Commodus is not a moral man. He wants it for all of the wrong reasons. 
And so Maximus, being a loyal servant to Caesar, says, will you give me some time to contemplate? And so he spent the evening contemplating and thinking about it. And then the scene shifts to a scene with Commodus and his father in the tent when he was going to drop the news to Commodus saying, you're not going to take my place. And so he tells him that. He says, Maximus is going to rule. It's not going to be you. And you could see immediately Commodus just begin crying and he has so much sorrow. Everything that he wanted and dreamed of was to become Caesar one day. He wanted people to bow down to him and worship him. He wanted all the power for himself. That is everything that he was seeking. And so he's crying and the camera zeroes in on his face and you could see the tears streaming down. But then as it's on his face, you could start to see that as that sorrow is going, all of a sudden, that sorrow changes to anger. And in that moment, he decides, I'm going to murder my father so that I can become Caesar. And he pulls his dad's head into his chest as he's hugging him, and he smothers him to the point of murdering his own father. And he becomes Caesar. But what's interesting and ironic is that he never actually gets the satisfaction that he was seeking because nobody respected him as Caesar because he was an evil man that wanted all the glory for himself. And he ends up dying at the end of the movie, not even obtaining all that he was going after. Just as Caesar chose one man over the other based on the condition of his heart, God, too, is concerned about the conditions of our hearts. The question that God wants us to evaluate this morning is, what is the condition of your heart? When God looks at your heart, what does He see? Does He see a servant's heart? One that's under submission to His authority. Characterized by meekness, humility, purity. Is your heart peaceful? Does it have gentleness? Is it open to reason? Full of mercy? Does it produce good fruit? Impartial and sincere? As it all states in James chapter 3, verse 17 that BJ preached on last week. Or when God looks at our hearts, does He see a proud heart that's filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and envy? The answer to this question is more important than anything else because it causes us to evaluate our standing before God. The main point of this message is found in verse 6 where it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's absolutely nothing more scary than the idea of being in opposition to God and God having opposition to us. We think of places like Matthew 18, verse 28, where it says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That should get our attention. So how do we evaluate the condition of our hearts? How do we identify if we have a proud heart or if we have a humble heart? Our passage shows us that the way that we can evaluate the condition of our hearts is to identify what it is 
that our hearts desire the most. Our passage begins with a look at a fruit of a proud heart. An envious, covetous heart. Verses 1 and 2 in chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. A proud heart has passions that are waging war within of us. And the word for passions here in in verses 1 and 3 is hedonism. It's a pursuit of pleasure. A selfish pleasure. An envious pleasure. A covetous pleasure. It makes sense then that when you look at the Ten Commandments, the last commandment is, Thou shalt not covet. Because coveting is where fighting comes from. It's where selfishness comes from. Somebody wants something that they don't have, so they quarrel and they fight to get what it is that they want. But they're never ever going to get what it is that they're looking for. And the reason they're not going to get it is explained at the end of verse 2. Look at verse 2 again. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. That makes sense. You're not going to get anything unless you ask for it. So some people don't get what it is that they're looking for because they don't even ask God for it. And there's lots of people that don't even believe in a God or the God, right? There's only one God. So they don't come to Him and they don't ask. Then there's others who do believe in God, but we don't necessarily come before Him and ask for something that we might want. Maybe God's just not front and center in our lives enough and we don't think about it, so we don't come before Him and ask. Or maybe there's something in our lives that's just keeping us from wanting to come before God. So the first reason is because we don't even ask. But then it goes on and it acknowledges that there are times where we do ask and we still don't receive what we want. It says this in verse 3. It says, you ask and do not receive. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So, the other reason why we don't get what we want is because when we do ask, we ask wrongly. And it says that the reason why it's wrong is because we want to spend it on our own passions. Once again, that word passions is is an evil, envious passion. I want it for me. I'm going to look within things of the world to find what I want. And I'm not going to look... And find it from the Lord. It's an intent to gratify our own passions. The first thing that came to mind when when I was thinking this and I was reading it, um, maybe it was a conviction. Okay, it was a conviction. Um, There's a couple times where uh, I've purchased a lottery ticket. One of them was probably just a few months ago when it was like whatever, however many hundreds of millions. And uh, I didn't know how to do it, so I asked Naomi to do it. Kind of like when Adam just stood by. Okay. I didn't write that in. Um, and so, so we purchased the lottery ticket, and, and I've been in church long enough that I know the right things to say in the prayer. But when I came before God 
yes, I do admit I prayed that I would win. Um, I realize I didn't say that either. Um, so, so, but it wasn't a very confident prayer, right? So, it's uh, God, um, I I pray if it's your will um, that that you would let me win the lottery. And and of course, before I get to anything else, I'm going to put out there, uh, I will tithe with it. I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to pay off my debt. You don't like debt, God. I'm going to pay off my debt and so on and so forth. And I, I think it's probably obvious to everyone that's in here that I have never won the lottery. <clears throat> and And needless to say, it's because you know and I know my heart wasn't in the right place when I'm wanting to win the lottery. I want things. I want, I want to have lots of money. Yeah, I want to do, I would, I would give and do those things, but my underlying desire to win that lottery is probably not rooted in glorifying God. First Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierce themselves with many grief. God's not going to give us something that we're asking wrongly for because He wants us to find what we're looking for in Him. He loved me. He didn't let me win. I know that the concept is a struggle that probably a lot of us deal with in different ways. We want pleasure. We think that if I had this or if I had that, then I would be satisfied. But then when we get this or that, we still want more because what we're trying to fill, that void, is not being filled. Sometimes we work and we stride towards something that we think will bring us fulfillment. Or we think that it's the right thing to do. All to find out that it didn't fill the need that we hoped it would fulfill. In those incidents... I think the devil's deceived us. All right, so there, there's lots of times you, we want something. It's not necessarily wrong on face value. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, go, go do that. But maybe we have a little bit of a conviction because we know deep down God's trying to pull me over this way, but I want to go this way. But then we, try, then we start to justify it in our mind. You know, one of the most basic things in, in my life, sometimes it might sound silly, but I'd be driving to work sometimes and I haven't spent any time with the Lord. And I just want to keep plugging my mind with something like the radio or, or even Christian music. It could be even a sermon, but I have a conviction inside. Alan, you, you haven't even sat before me in prayer or quietness. But my mind just is justifying. Oh, but, but this is about God. This is about God. No, God's saying this. My heart's saying this. And there's all sorts of things. That's why sometimes some of the things that talk about in the Bible doesn't get super specific for every single thing because every single one of us has different desires and different things that are going on. And God wants us to come before Him and evaluate our hearts with Scripture to find out, am I doing that? Am I going this way or am I going that way? Some of the things we covet and strive for might not seem on face value as being wrong or selfish, but it's important to discern our heart's desires and measure them alongside God's Word so that we know if what we're praying for and we're asking for and what we're desiring is right. If it's a good thing to be asking God. When our prayers are prayed wrongly, they're wrong because they're contrary to God's will. 
they're rooted in worldly ambition and evil, envy and covetousness. Namely, their evil desires and are in opposition to God. That's why God says in verse 4, You adulterous people, you do, not know, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When we pursue our evil passions that our hearts desire, we've committed spiritual adultery against God. We've exchanged, just as it says in Romans in chapter 1, the truth of God for a lie. We've chosen the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God. We've been deceived to think that there are things in this world that can provide ultimate satisfaction for our craving hearts instead of looking to God and His wisdom for that fulfillment. James calls us out and he says, Do you not know? Or to put it in another way, he says, You should know. That's the point. We should know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You know what enmity is? Enmity is a deep-rooted hatred and a perpetual opposition to God. That's how he defines our desires that are contrary to his. Because of that, he says, whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And notice that it says he makes, he makes himself an enemy of God. This is a willful turning from the Lord. James 1, 14-15 describes it like this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The belief that we'll be satisfied if we get our sinful passions um, desire, that we'll get what our sinful passions desire and be satisfied is a lie from the pit of hell. And I fall into it often. You know, when I was thinking about it, I was trying to think of something that, uh, what's something that I keep desiring and I, and I keep getting over and over again and then it never just quenches my thirst or, or it never just satisfies me. And as lame as this might sound, I thought of salty jerky. <laughs> I love jerky and it, especially that salty piece of jerky. And if I eat it, I, if I have a big bag, there's no problem. I could dust that thing off. I just keep eating and eating and that one never satisfies. I just want more and more and more and more. And if I really want to apply it to the whole point I'm trying to make here, eventually I'm going to get sick. Tastes good for a little while, sounds okay, but then eventually it's not going to be good. Or you could think about it like Pringles. Once you pop, you can't stop. <laughs> but I digress. I don't mean to lighten this. It is a lie from the pit of hell. We can never get what we're looking for in this earth. We have to look upward in order to be satisfied. It only comes through Jesus. Listen to what James says in chapter 1. These are just the following two verses. Verses 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift 
is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Don't be deceived. What we really want is found in God, who gives us good and perfect gifts. God loves us and He wants to give us what we need. That's why He says in verse 5, He says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? He yearns over our Spirit. He loves us and He's made it to dwell in us. I think that's put in there so that we realize that it came from Him. He's our Father. He's our Creator. He made us exactly how we are. He knows our every thoughts. He knows our every need. And He desires to give us only good in what we need. God yearns for us to pray rightly from a humble heart so that He can be pleased to give us what we ask for. Jesus said this, Matthew 7, verses 9-11, through 11, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If then, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? We should also meditate on Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, forever. Amen. Our God is a good, loving God who leads us and provides us with everything we need. If He is our shepherd, we shall not want. You might say, now, I've heard this message over and over again. I'm right there with you. My whole life, pretty much, I've been in church. I've heard this message over and over again. I've been touched before. You know, I have felt it. I, there is, I cannot deny my faith. I know that I know that I know. Bob says it all the time. So true. You might be saying, I've heard this again, but my life has gone through so many different Things, I have physical ailments that, that, that are challenging my faith. I, I have different times in my life that got hard. And so I started to drift away from God. And, and I did. I, I turned away from God and my heart has grown cold. It is starting to get hard. And I'm afraid that maybe I'm not even saved anymore. Maybe God, maybe God just rejected me because I kept rejecting Him. What hope is there for me? There's verse 6. He gives more grace. 
more grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, free of charge, is sufficient. God will take you back. Just come back. Just hear. That's what this passage is saying. He's saying, I love you. Come back to me. Come back to Jesus. Jesus loves you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. If you're His, you are sealed. You're sealed. Paul he referred to a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was. Um, a lot of people think it was a physical ailment. Many think that it was possibly poor eyesight. But this is what he said about the thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God refused to remove His thorn. Why? To keep Him from becoming conceited. Conceit's the very thing that would have deceived Paul into believing that he was self-sufficient. The very thing that would give him a proud heart. God loved him. Paul, I love you. I want you to have a humble heart so that you actually have what you need and what you want. And God's grace was sufficient for Paul. And we know that when he was in the jail, he wrote to the church, the Philippian church, and he said, What? I have learned in what any situation I'm in how to be content. He called it a secret. We know what the secret was. It was Christ. Christ kept him content. Contentment, happiness, and satisfaction is what we're all searching for. And it can only be found in Jesus Christ. Through His grace. You know, pride and envy and covetousness, that's what kills happiness. That's the root of it. Kills it. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we want victory over our prideful hearts, we need a humble heart. So, how do we get a humble heart? Verses 7 through 11. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Freedom from sinful hearts begins with submission to God. He's exposed our problem in the beginning of this passage. He reminded us of His love that He has for us. He also reminded us that He's able to provide what it is that we truly need. And now, He demands a response. The first step towards a humble heart 
is submission. It's to submit to God like a soldier would submit to a superior officer. We need to acknowledge that He is God and we are not. And then once we've identified our position before God, then we're in a position to draw near to God. You know, James' Jewish audience, they knew exactly what he was talking about when he talked about drawing near to God and cleansing your hands and purifying hearts. These were terms that they knew. James only had to write a one sentence there to get such a deep meaning in this passage. These are words that are being used that they recall all the way back over the last couple thousand years from the beginning of mankind when God would speak through His prophets and try to get the nation of Israel to repent and turn back to Him. This is the verbiage used by them. This is also the verbiage that's used when we're talking about the priests. And they're consecrating themselves. And they're going before the Lord in the Holy of Holies. And they're coming before the Lord in the tent of meeting. For us to really kind of get a glimpse of maybe some of the verses or some of the things that they were thinking about back then, we should probably go and look at a few passages that they might have recalled. Exodus 19.22 Let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. In Ezekiel 44.16, speaking of the Levitical priests, God said, They shall enter My sanctuary. And they shall approach my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. And I would just encourage you to continue looking at all of chapter 44 in Ezekiel because it talks all about the rituals and the casting off of the old garments and the putting on of the new and everything that needs to happen and the cleanliness that needs to take place in order to come before the Lord and worship and minister to Him. Exodus 30, 17-21 The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord. They shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. And then we read in Isaiah, as God calls through Isaiah to the nation of Israel to repent. Isaiah 1, 15 and 16. God says to them, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. True submission to God begins with the realization that we can't draw near to Him unless we are cleansed from our sinful hearts. Because He's a holy God and nothing evil can enter His presence. When we see and evaluate our hearts, the filth that is there, we should mourn. 
It should bother us. It should cause sorrow. That's why it says in verse 9, it says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I think it's easy to look at this, this passage and read through it quickly and get the idea that God loves us. He wants us to have good things. And you get to this verse and you... I thought you want me to be happy. You tell me to mourn and weep. I think mourning and weeping is evidence of a repentant heart. It's kind of like um, when I was a kid and I did something wrong and my father confronted me and he told me that he was disappointed. And then that would crush me so much because there was nothing I wanted more than to please my father. Our sin should bring sorrow because of how much we love our Heavenly Father and we want to please Him. If we see Him clearly for who He is, a loving Father, then we should strive to know His heart and obey Him for His glory and for our good. Thankfully, God in His mercy and grace will lift us up when we humble our hearts before Him. For some of you who may be listening this morning or some, some people that might listen to this at a, at a later time, this might be a call to salvation for you. This might be the first time that God has been touching at your heart and grabbing at your heart and saying, come to me. Maybe for the first time your, your eyes have been opened and you've been starting to, and you start to see like, yeah, I've been wanting something that I'm not obtaining. I've, I've been searching for it in all the wrong ways and God is opening that up and helping you see with your own eyes and, and you're saying, yeah, that is filthy. I want something. I want clean hands. I want a pure heart. I want a relationship with God. Well, the good news is, is God has grace and He's saying, come to Him. God's saying, come to Him. He sent Jesus Christ on earth who was perfect. He's God. And He was tempted to sin, and he never sinned. And then the people put him on a cross, put him to death, and crucified him. And he didn't stay dead, and he rose three days later, and he conquered death. And he took the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And the, and the Holy Scriptures tell us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For it is with our heart that we believe and are justified and with our mouth that we confess and are saved. That could be your prayer this morning. That will be a prayer that's in accordance with His will. That He will answer. He will hear that prayer and say, yes, that is what I want. I'm the one that's calling you. And just come. For others of us, we're listening to this and we're, we need to search our hearts again. We're called to take up our cross daily. Die to ourselves and follow Him. It's not an easy life. We struggle. We've gone through so many different things. We should respond with a prayer like the psalmist in 139, verses 23 and 24, which says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. That's probably most of us in here. I would like to close with the lyrics of a song by this great young group of theologians uh, called 
audio adrenaline <laughs> from the late 90s, early 2000s. They have a song about humility and about God's grace. And it's called Get Down. Lavishly, our lives are wasted. Humbleness is left untasted. You can't live your life to please yourself yet. That's a tip from my mistakes. Exactly what it doesn't take. To win, you've got to come in last place. To live your life, you've got to lose it. And all the losers get a crown. I get down, and He lifts me up. I get down, and He lifts me up. I get down, and He lifts me up. I get down. All I need is another day where I can't seem to get away from the many things that drag me down. I'm sure you've had a day like me when nothing seems to set you free from the burdens you can't carry all alone. In your weakness, He is stronger. In your darkness, He shines through. When you're crying, He's your comfort. When you're all alone, He's carrying you. Get down. He lifts me up. I get down. He lifts me up. I get down. And He lifts me up. I get down. This valley is so deep, I can barely see the sun. I cry out for mercy, Lord, and He lifts me up again. I get down, and He lifts me up. I get down, and He lifts me up. I get down, and He lifts me up. I get down. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. As we draw near to the throne of grace, ask the ushers to come forward and worship team and we'll examine our hearts.